0: Who is young in this congregation? Who's a young person? We've got one, a couple up here. Most of us are older now. Allie's young. Is that Allie's hand? Yeah. I did not raise my hand. <laughs> you're young, Allie. You're, you're young. In a good way. You've got so much life ahead of you. And so some of you have a lot of life ahead of you. Um, this and so for you some of you in your 20s and even 30s I think this would especially apply because the preacher today in this passage we're considering aims his sights at the young person who has a lot of life ahead of them and I'm sure because of experiences in life um, those of those of us and those of you who are older maybe, Able to give us wisdom based on your experience. And this is what Koheleth is doing, the preacher is doing. He is giving us, as an old man, looking back on his life, wisdom. Remember, wisdom is how to live in accordance with the reality that God has created. So this passage seems to be aimed at the young man. And the preacher is exhorting him to make the most of life. So read with me uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, and the place where the tree falls, there it will be. Whoever observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way of the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed. And at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. There's, you know, my my little boy, Wesley, turned 10 this past week. 10 years is a decade. And a decade has gone by since I left in the middle of the day at my mortgage processing job in Newburgh, New York, and drove to Orange Regional Medical Center, and sat with Nydia, and then finding out that Nidia was going to have a baby that day. And at 9.06 PM, we watched Wesley come into the world. That was 10 years ago. I'm sure, parents, you have memories like that. And you know, your children are going to grow up, and they're going to leave the house, and they'll go off to college. What advice, what pieces of wisdom are we going to give our children when they leave us? What, what last teaching can we send them off with? Thank you, Elise. Elise said, be good. That would be good advice, Elise. Well, your advice should be God-centered, and your and your advice should come out of the effulgence of a life lived as an example for your children, and it should come off the strength of years of discipleship for them. But here, the preacher gives advice to a young man. I almost picture the young the young man being sent off into the world, and the preacher gives him advice on how to make the most of life he gives him very practical advice emotional advice and very spiritual advice and so i just want to go through those three aspects of advice that he gives this young man or young men in general first of all there's practical advice if you look in verse one this is really revolving around how you can make the most out of your resources, it seems. Um, He says, cast your bread on the waters. You'll find it after many days. It seems to be, according to the commentaries, it seems to be maritime trading. That is, getting your grain and selling it to uh, to the ships and knowing that you'll make more money actually selling some of your resources than you would if you stored it up. And stored up what you couldn't eat. So it seems to be a business proposal. A piece of business advice. As does verse 2. Give a portion to seven or to eight. For you know not what disaster may happen on earth. In other words, he, he is suggesting that the young man diversify his portfolio into seven or eight places. Because you don't know what disaster may happen to... One bunch or another bunch. So diversify where you put your portions, whatever that may be, grain or money. So he's saying be strategic with your resources, and I think that's good advice. Next he says be proactive as a young man. He said don't allow the unpredictability of life to lull you into inaction. I think that's the spirit of verse 3 and 4 if the clouds of rain if the clouds are full of rain they empty themselves on earth so if there's, if there's clouds they may rain a tree may fall to the south or to the north so I think, I think the examples in verse 3 are representative of unpredictability in life it may rain the trees may fall it's unpredictable but here's verse 4 is the exhortation he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not re- re- reap. So if, if there's a someone who's, who goes out to their farm and says, oh, it's too windy to sow, I'll sow tomorrow, or it's too cloudy to sow, it, it may rain. These seem to be justifications for inaction, and that will lead to poverty. And so he's saying, don't let clouds in the sky or falling trees, or unpredictability in life, stop you from actually being proactive. Do what you need to do. You don't know what's going to happen in life. Yes, trees may fall. Yes, it may rain. But if you never sow, you will never reap. So do not use circumstances in life as excuses or justifications for inaction. Be proactive. Do what you need to do. Also good advice. Don't allow non-ideal circumstances to paralyze you into inaction," he's saying. Proverbs 10:4 says, "A slack hand causes poverty, and the hand of the diligent makes rich. Slack, a slack hand causes poverty. So it's not always economic injustice that causes poverty sometimes it's a slack hand very often and perhaps most of the time and the great majority of the time it's a slack hand so he says be proactive also the preacher suggests a young man be industrious verse 5 here's another piece of unpredictability it's the way The way a child is formed in the womb. It's an amazing thing. That life and a spirit is given to bones and flesh and sinew that form in the womb. That's an amazing thing. But he is, the preacher is saying, because you don't know what God will bless and you don't know how these things work out, you need to be industrious. So in the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both will be alike. So, in other words, you don't know the ways of God, the preacher is saying, how he makes things happen. So, be diligent. Seize opportunities, because you don't know which opportunity God will bless So I think I think that the preacher is is suggesting just very practical, down to earth advice, to be proactive and to be diligent and not look for answers from the sky, on when to act or how to act. Just do what you know you need to do, young man. Be diligent. You not you don't know what God will bless. Be diligent, and you're better off that way. And you will certainly. Harvest because you have sown. Um, One commentator talks about the sovereignty of God in this passage. This seems to be a sovereign God who is able to form bones in the womb. Obviously, there is a sovereign God who does this. This is an amazing thing. But, if verse 5, the forming of a child in a womb refers to the mystical sovereignty of God verse 6 like we said is an ex- is an exhortation not to hide behind that sovereignty the commentator says the purpose of the sovereignty of God is not to cause you to lean on your shovel praying for a hole right so we don't lean on our shovel praying for a hole you have to venture out boldly and let the sovereignty of God be your comfort not your excuse. That is a good word. Let the sovereignty of God be your comfort and not your excuse. You don't wait in a field for God to sow. No, you sow the seed. And trust that God will provide a harvest for you. So it's being proactive in life. Because you don't, and yeah, even, he even says, suggests that you work in the morning and the night. He even seems to suggest like a side hustle The preacher. Um, So not withholding your hand from being proactive in work because we're not sure what God might prosper. Seizing every opportunity. That's what the preacher seems to be saying. Um, Seizing opportunities because God may bless it. So be industrious. Be proactive. Um, my dad is an excellent example of somebody who does not withhold his hand from doing things because God may prosper it. My dad has a, my dad has a if you build it, they will come philosophy of life. Um, when we were a young, when we were a young church, Bread of Life was a young church, um, we were looking for land kind of like in the same position we are now. We were looking for land, and Dad saw land, 70 acres of land for sale. And it was an excellent deal for $70,000. Imagine that, 70 acres for $70,000. The trick there is that it was landlocked land. That is to say, there was wetland in front of it, and there was no road access at all anywhere else. So sure, it was 70 acres. And sure, it was only $70,000. But you couldn't actually get to it. So it was on sale for years. No one could build anything there. The town had not given access to anyone to build a road to access the land. And so it was just land for sale. You couldn't access it. I mean, legally, you couldn't even walk through it. Well, my dad, though, Prayerfully and I would say boldly, went as a pastor of this church. I don't even know if a decision was made in the congregation, but they bought the land. They bought this landlocked piece of land. And my dad went to the courts and appealed to put a road through the wetland, and wouldn't you know it, somehow he got the appeal through. And this 70-acre property now is where Bread of Life sits today, and they were able to build a road through the wetland, which was not allowed for years before that, and made that 70-acre piece of property before worthless. Now they have a church on it, and it's, it's probably millions of dollars, that land. So I think that's a prime example of not withholding your hand. Certainly, it took a lot of faith and guts for dad to do that but I think that was a great example of not withholding your hand because you don't know if God's going to bless it or not he went in with a wager and the Lord blessed the work of his hands Psalm 90 verse 17 is a verse sometimes I pray says let the favor of our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands yes establish the work of our hands now, that's not to say we pre- presume to just require God to bless what we're doing. But it is to, it is to ask God's favor that, that He is pleased to dwell and act in the thing that we're doing. If, if we act in faith, trust in God, and we're being diligent, then I think it's a good thing to ask the Lord for his favor to be upon the work of our hands. So that's what the preacher's advice is. Be proactive, be diligent, don't withhold your hand from doing good, because you don't know what the Lord will prosper. The next is an emotional piece of advice to enjoy life. He says, light is sweet, verse 7. And it is pleasant to see the sun. So if a person lives many days, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember the days of darkness will be many. All is vanity. So in this passage, um, he is essentially saying that life is short. And you should enjoy it. And you should seek to cultivate a moment-by-moment awareness and appreciation for life. Because it is vain. And here, vain doesn't mean meaningless, as I've said before, but it means something more like fleeting, passing away. It's a vapor. It's here in one moment, gone the next. Wesley was born a decade ago. And it feels like a day ago. And I know you I know you can resonate with that. Light in verse seven is a metaphor for life. And darkness represents death. So in view of the shortness of your life, rejoice in the days that God has given you under the sun. It is a good thing to rejoice in life. I, You know, I am getting older, and my body is not what it used to be, but man, when I'm playing basketball with friends, and... I'm having a good physical day and running and and jumping and, and my shots are actually going in and I'm able to play good defense, it is just a joy. I am so thankful for the opportunity to do that. I know I only have a little bit more time so until I can ask for a little bit more time to actually play basketball with any kind of facility at all, but it is a joy to be able to do that. So. I would suggest you seek to enjoy life, maybe through hobbies or through different aspects of life the Lord has given you. Seek to cultivate appreciation and joy for that in the moment. The preacher says, rejoice in all of those days. Todd gave me a great piece of advice a few weeks ago. I don't know if you remember this, Todd. But you're you talking about the inconvenient moments of life. How they're actually part of life. They, they are the life that God has given to you by God. So I believe that the power to enjoy comes, comes from and starts with even the inconvenient moments. That is, begin to reframe the mundane and even the inconvenient moments in life as blessings from god for example friday night um, i had spent a long day um, on friday i was in intensely studying Um, i was tired but you know what we had to do we had wesley's party to set up for at 9 p.m at my dad's church we were gonna have 30 to 40 kids come to this party it was great but I, I was tired. It was it's bedtime, right? Nine o'clock, time for bed. Um, but we had to drive to Middletown to pick up a printing that we sent to them. Then we had to drive to Bullville. Then we had to spend two and a half hours setting up, and then we had to drive back home. And I was thinking, I don't want to. I don't want to do this. This is a drudgery. This is. I'm tired. Let's go to bed. This kind of thing. That that kind of attitude is my and i think sometimes my default frame of viewing inconveniences in life and then i see moments of life in my life as just a collection of inconveniences what if i reframed that into appreciating every moment and appreciating each element as a gift from God. So for example, what if I just thought about instead of having to drive to Middletown and having to pick up this thing at Staples and then having to go to Belleville, I got to drive in the car with my wife and talk about things. We talked about our plans, we talked about spiritual things, and I was spending time with the wife of my youth. And instead of having to spend two and a half hours setting up, my little boy is turning ten years old. And he's going to have friends over. And there are people that he loves, and that love him, and that he enjoys, and that enjoy him, along with my family and some friends. who are over. And that's a beautiful thing. And so, do you see how you can just reframe inconveniences in life and, and rather see them from a different angle in order to appreciate them, I think that's where enjoying life begins. It begins with the inconvenient and the mundane being reframed as blessings instead of mere inconveniences. Here's a quote from, T.S., or from, T.S., from C.S. Lewis that Todd gave me. He says, The great thing, if one can, is to stop regarding all the unpleasant things as interruptions of one's own or real life. The truth is, of course, that one calls the interruptions, or what one calls the interruptions, are precisely one's real life. The life that God is sending one day by day. So that the mundane aspects of your life and even the interruptions in your life is the life that God is sending you day by day. And the power to enjoy comes from reframing these events from interruptions and mundane things to gifts that God has given you. So, the preacher, again, like he's been throughout the whole book, is suggesting that we enjoy life. Then he suggests something that might sound a little strange to sanctified ears. He suggests that you follow your heart. Verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you to judgment. Remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of your life are vanity, that is, are fleeting. Now follow your heart. Let your heart cheer you. Walk in the ways of your heart in the sight of your eyes. That sounds like, on first blush, pagan advice. And we do know that we know more than Koheleth does, the preacher does. So we're sometimes very suspicious of his advice. Sometimes he sounds a lot like Job's comforters. But there is a difference. Follow your heart in contemporary society means you have license to do whatever self-indulgent thing you want to do. That's what follow your heart means in the world. But there is a difference between A license and enjoyment. License and enjoyment are two different things. And I think the preacher is talking about enjoyment, not a license to sin. The reason I think that is because right at the end of verse 9, he says, But know for all these things God will bring you to judgment. So it's not an unchastened, unsanctified piece of advice. It's actually advice to do the things that bring you joy within the boundaries that God has set for you. Hear that? To do that which brings you joy within the boundaries that God has set for you. Joy is to be pursued, but in, within those boundaries. very interesting passage is Deuteronomy 28, 47, where the Lord will, brings promises to bring covenant curses upon the people of Israel because they did not serve the Lord with joy. He's, he talks about the covenants will come, And he says, they will come because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. That is a very interesting thing. So curses, part of the reason the curses will come upon Israel is because they did not serve the Lord with joy or gladness of heart in view of the abundance of of possessions and land that the Lord has given them. Do not grumble and complain in the wilderness like the Israelites did. That is very displeasing to God. There are two reasons. Now, I'm sure there are more, there are more. But as I see it, there are two reasons why many people don't live joyfully under god number 1 the first reason people don't live joyfully under god christians don't live joyfully under god is because grumpiness is far easier than gratefulness far easier than great, great gratefulness grump uh, here's another commentator says that grumpiness is a sin it is i think particularly among males. It is the kind of sin we tolerate. It is an emotion that we cherish in our man caves at the twilight of day, ruined by interruptions and hassles or annoying people. It is an attitude of heart and mind nurtured by the reign of self-pity. Men, I know you know what he's talking about. It is so easy to indulge in self-pity. It is so easy to grumble and just gnaw on a grumpy, grumbling attitude. It's just easy to do. It's like sitting back in a lounge chair. It requires no sanctified stirring of the mind. It requires... That you, you don't need to the energy to bring your heart to the things God has promised you. It requires no action or activity. No meditation on the word. It's easy to be grumpy. And one of the reasons that many Christians do not enjoy life under God is because we constantly cultivate this attitude of grumpiness instead of cultivating an attitude of gratefulness grumpiness is far easier and it feels good even sometimes why is that because it's a way of condemning the world while justifying yourself listen i'm not even i'm not just talking about you i'm speaking autobiographically because i know this feeling <coughs> It's self-pity and it's grumbling and complaining rather than looking at the many blessings that God has given you and cultivating an atmosphere of thanksgiving. A second, so that's one reason that I think many people, especially men, certainly women too, don't enjoy the life that God has given them because they have slouched in to a posture of laziness or grumpiness, which is a lazy. It's a spiritual lazy posture. And it's easy. All right, so that's one reason. The second reason I see that people don't enjoy life under God is because they feel trapped by the status quo. When I was working, this is... when I was working at MetLife as a mortgage processor, it's as exciting as it sounds. (laughs) You would walk in. I commuted 50 minutes to work. I would walk in, and it was Cubicle Village. And I was at the lowest of the low rung. I was not one of the high people who knew what they were doing. I didn't know what was going on there. I was a data entry specialist, and um, gosh, it was so sucking (laughs) to go in there and just this gray village that represented the depression with which the men and women would walk in and clench their coffees desperately, longing for something to bring them joy as they sat at their cubicle with two screens facing them, and they would drudgingly begin to enter the data from loans that the loan officers had sent in and be asked to work overtime because they're very busy. It was just, ah, office space were office space worse than that, worse than that. So, MetLife, mortgage processor. And, you know, during this time, I'm in my early 20s, mid 20s, and I was really getting into apologetics. I was reading massive tomes from M.T. Wright, Mike Lacona, William Lane Craig, Gary Habermas, all names, which you should check out if you're interested in, on the resurrection of Christ, but thousands of pages I'm reading. And I, would, I was saying to my family, you know, I would love to go to graduate school and, like study apologetics there's even some programs like, out there that you could study theology and it was this was mind-boggling to me but i thought that that was so far removed from reality because i had kind of fallen into this status quo in my mind like this was the life that i've been dealt so I have to do this thing. I have, for the rest of my life, I have to go into the gray office and do the thing. And, and this would be kind of my you know, side thing. I could read theology on the weekends and at night, but I remember after that conversation, one of the conversations that I had with my dad, he called me up the next morning and said, well, why don't you go to seminary? And a light turned on. I said, wait, why don't I go to seminary? I felt it was it is psychologically, this is obvious, but I think a lot of people have this experience. They feel trapped by the status quo. And I realized, well, this would take a lot of work. I still have Nydia, and we, we need to live, so I need to make money. But why not? There are online programs. I'd love to study theology. Let's do this. It it just took someone speaking into my life and saying, well, why why don't you just do the thing you want to do? Why not let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth? You know, why not walk in the ways of your heart in that sense? So I did. And it took, I think, five years. But you know what? Five years would have passed if I didn't do it. Right? The time's going to pass anyhow. And it was hard, but I did it. I learned a lot. It was an exciting experience. Um, and so, what I'm saying is to take sanctified risks in life and not feel bound by the status quo. What would stop a newly married couple? from finding a house close to a church that's solid. And selling everything and moving close to this church so they could sow into that community. And buy 10 acres and raise a bunch of chickens and goats and quit their job which makes them work 80 hours a week and find something simpler. What well, if? What if that's what they want to do? Why not? Why not? I think I think sometimes we feel handicapped by the status quo, and it keeps it keeps us bound in circumstances and situations where we just grudgingly feel like we have to do this, but we really don't. And I think that's what the preacher is saying, or that's what I'm driving. That's what I'm deriving from this, rather. That. I think one of the reasons people don't walk in the ways of their heart in this sanctified sense is because they feel bound by the status quo in life. You don't. You are not bound. Do what is the Lord has put in your heart and mind to do. The first question you should ask: What does it glorify God? The second question you should ask is: Do I want to do this? And if all things are equal, do that thing. If you can glorify God, i.e., if you can provide for your family men, if you could sow into a good church, if you can be a man of God, if it won't assault your conscience, then I believe you're free to do it. So, enjoy it. Follow your heart in that sense. In that sense. But in all of your following your heart, in all of your doing what your eyes want to do, in all of the strength of your youth, in all of the the enjoyment of your hobbies, in all of these things, the preacher gives us a last, final, vital appeal in chapter 12, verse 1. To the youth, remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. What we have here, and I'm about to read the rest of it, is a long exhortation to remember God as a youth in light of death, in light of the fact that your vitality will not last forever. So kids, what do we have? We have Wesley, Elise, can't see whose hand that is. The Zumbo children. What are the kids that we have here? Kids up there, can't see, but I trust you. <laughs> so listen, children, um, you feel young now, and you feel vibrant now, and your whole life is ahead of you. And I know this is a, um, a um, a middle-aged man telling you this that with no hair, and I'm old, and way past it, so I get that. But your youth will fade quickly. Your youth will fade quickly. And the days will come where your energy is gone and your opportunities will have waned in life. And you'll have made your decisions but in all all of you if you could right now make it a point to remember your creator as a youth and decide to seek him now as a youth you will not come to a point where you spiritually say why why did i not why did i squander my life I I had no pleasure in my life because I did not remember God. Um, It's easy, children. It's easy to neglect God in your youth. Very easy. Why is that? Well, like I said, because you have all the time. The time you have. We'll all be dead and you'll still be alive at some point, most likely. So you have time. Um, And your parents' faith feels like a covering over you. It feels like you're safe and protected because your parents believe and you're in a Christian home. And because you have other things in life that are exciting. There are friends and there's games, there's jobs eventually, and then there's hobbies you're going to like to do. All of this seems exciting. And God seems to be one step removed from the front of your mind. I'm, I'm encouraging you and the Bible's encouraging you to take God and put him to the front of your mind. And don't waste your youth. Don't get to know God when you're 30. After making all these mistakes. Get to know God now and devote your life to him now. Read the scripture now. Pray now. Learn about God now before you regret your youth. Now, the days will come back to you adults when we say we had no pleasure and we have no pleasure in them. I mean, old people are grumpy, right? Why is that? Because they're sore, they're tired. My, my grandmother is 94 years old, and uh, I think it was her 93rd or 94th birthday, uh, we were saying happy birthday to her, and she was oh, happy birthday to you, and Elise said, and many more. <laughs> and my grandma said, oh, please. <laughs> she does not want many more birthdays. The days will come. The days will come when you will say, I have no pleasure in these days. So, um, the preacher then goes on to a description of aging and losing your vitality and losing your strength. And this is one of the most wistful passages in all the scripture, I think. Because he will start to talk about losing your vitality and then then your funeral. Verse 2. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dim, and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way the almond tree blossoms the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel is broken at the cistern and the dust returns to earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. This is a description of aging and eventually death. And we have baked into it losing your physical vitality. And one through five verses really are about physical decline and metaphorical darkness coming over a community. Is supposed to represent aging. The keepers of the house tremble. We've seen old, the aged people trembling before. Men who used to be strong are hunched over in this passage. The grinders, that is, the female servants who would grind grain with millstones, their seats because there are a few of them left. The doors are shut, that is, they're not open to go out. People are not going out with their friends anymore, or to work. The door to their houses remains shut. One rises at the sound of a bird. That means his sleep is not as deep as it used to be. He's interrupted. His boldness is turned to fear. The grasshopper even drags himself along, almost to join the aged man in his aging. And desire fails. Uh, Desire there is a word for uh, an aphrodisiac. So he's saying that that appetite will fail when you get old. And all of this is part of the aging process. So, the preacher wants young men to know that this will happen to them. Kids, young people, you will be old and hunched over one day. You know, it's amazing looking at World War II veterans. I read a stat that, I mean, there's not many left, but we're losing every day 131 World War II veterans. There was strength in those men and women. There was intellect in them. There was life in them. There was bravery in them. They ran across battlefields with bullets whizzing by their head. They went across the sea not knowing if they would come back. There was... There was life there. And they came back victorious. And they were strong. And then they built families. And now they're old and hunched over. And the young man looks at the old man and almost feels bad for him. Almost feels bad for him. But we'll all be in that place. Even the youngest of us here will all be, if the Lord allows us to tarry that long, we'll be in a place where we tremble, where we're hunched over, and the doors of our house are shut. The imagery then goes to death, where the the silver cord is snapped. And that silver cord was holding a broke a golden bowl that's now broken. Life is as valuable as silver and gold, but the silver cord will snap, the golden bowl will be broken the shad- the pitcher will be shattered, it can no longer hold water, the wheels will be broken, and you will return to dust. So, gosh. And he says, vanity, fleeting, life is fleeting. Life is short, it is a vapor. So, it's interesting that, that the preacher, again, doesn't really give us a resolution here. He just says, listen, you're going to die. And life is vanity. It's fleeting. And this is why it's important. Now we're ending Ecclesiastes. Next week will be our last week. But it's so important to understand that without Christ... This would be our reality. There would be fogginess after life. The preacher's eschatology is very foggy. He doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. He knows we'll return to dust. He knows the spirit will return to God. He knows there's judgment even. But it's not as clear as the word we have in the New Testament. Um, so what, what can we do in light of death? Uh, I mean, how can we cheer our souls in light of this reality so quickly coming to us? I mean, this, in our culture, we don't talk about death. It's almost like it doesn't happen to people. And if it happens to people, it's a tragedy. But it's actually coming for us all. It's a fallen world, and God did not allow a fallen world to persist. So, what can we do? I can only in good conscience point us to what Jesus said about God's character and provision. He says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you of not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single span to his life? So you can't, by being anxious. By, you can't add a single span to your life. He says that God clothes the grass and he'll clothe you. Oh, you of little faith. That's the key. He chastens the anxious man for little faith. Yes, we will age and we will die, but you are perfectly safe. This is is a concept I've been trying to wrap my mind around for years that no matter what happens to you in life, you're perfectly safe with God. That is to say, if you were held up at gunpoint or thrown into the depths of the sea to drown with a millstone hung about your neck, it would be very unpleasant. But you are completely safe in the hands of God. You know what I'm saying? You're safe. You're not you're, 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 you're in no danger. Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body. It's almost like he's saying, All the worst they can do is kill you. That's it. Because there's body and soul. And so you are a soul with a body, and you're perfectly safe under the watchful and good hands of the Lord, no matter what befalls you. It's no tragedy, though, that we will get old and die. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, the Lord has you in his arm just like he has the sparrow, just like he has the flower of the field. You're completely safe in his arm no matter what befalls you. So I encourage you to press past little faith and trust God's character and provision entirely.